Some time later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers in Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. Thanks, Libby. Hey, everybody. I know fall is here because I'm sick again. And it's kind of fun to be at High Point. You get a pastor that's as sick as Luther and Calvin, though probably a quarter as godly. Um, uh, speaking of two, a two-sermon series on conflict, a great place to practice um, civil and virtuous conflict would be to come to that poverty forum um, after Ken Taylor does his presentation on poverty in Dane County and the greater Wisconsin area. There is going to be a very progressive um, pastoral presentation for 15 minutes on the Christian responsibility towards poverty. Then Harold Rayford, African-American pastor from Sun Prairie that we've partnered with their church, will be here giving a 15-minute presentation on the Christian responsibility towards poverty. And then I'll be speaking for 15 minutes on the Christian response towards poverty. And then there'll be like a 45-minute discussion and then a wrap-up. So it should be a very lively, interesting, fun, peaceful event. It's the only one I know of in which there is actual cross-discussion between those three groups. It's the first poverty forum that they've been able to do where they not only had a historically conservative or orthodox Christian voice and a mainline liberal Christian voice, but also an African-American. Then African-Americans just kind of fit somewhere like this in relationship to those groups, so it should be a very interesting interaction. I, I promise our organizational meetings have been very interesting. So um, also please make me look good by coming to this. Okay. <laughs> Um, when we look at this passage and we think, okay, so we're going to hear about how a Christian deals with and handles conflict on the basis of this passage, your first impulse might be because Nick's going to explain how this is a terrible way to handle conflict. Because if you were listening to the passage, these guys came from Jerusalem in the middle of chapter 15 where they had this huge conflict about um, whether or not um, Gentiles or non-Jewish people could become Christians and they, everybody was like the big man and not petty and they sorted it all out and this this great moment of like uh, something that could have been terrible that was amazing and then they go back and the first thing Paul does is he breaks up the band with his best friend um, and decides not to do any more ministry with him and, and so he has this huge conflict with his best friend and then he goes and does minor surgeries on the genitals of a new friend to not create conflict with a bunch of Jewish guys he's never met. Right? And you're like, oh, of course. That's how Christians should handle conflict. And so I, if you're like in this moment of like, um, that's totally fine. And one of, the, one of the limitations of passages like the book of Acts that are narratives, the signals for how we should interpret what the text is showing us are often fairly subtle. And it's not obvious, and so you could read this passage and be like, man, I wish that I could get inside the Apostle Paul's head and understand like, what he was thinking when he did this. And that might help me understand what is going on. And, and the reason why that would be great if you were thinking that or started thinking that when I told you maybe you should think that is because there's actually another passage in the New Testament where Paul has a very sharp conflict, and it is in a letter he wrote so we can get inside of his head. And that is in the book of Galatians. Now, when I say book of Galatians, some of you who have not been at church very much, you may imagine when we Christians say book, we're referring to like Dickens-length documents, but we are not. 
Almost all of the books of the Bible, especially in the New Testament, um, are letters, in the New Testament at least, and they're often less than three pages long. So when I say the book of Galatians, I am talking about a letter that you can read the entirety of in 20 minutes, okay? So don't be intimidated. In the second chapter, which is like the fourth through the eighth paragraph of this letter, this is what the Apostle Paul says about this conflict. He said, 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, which is the guy, right, that he ministers with, right? I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation to set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. That is, Gentiles are non-Jewish people. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. So, right? so he's not Jewish. He's a Gentile. He's, he's from a Greek culture. And the question that they were dealing with was, Paul was telling people who weren't Jewish people that they could believe in Jesus and be made right with God without becoming Jewish people. And that was the big question. And so Titus, who wasn't Jewish, went along to see whether or not, in addition to believing in Jesus, he should become a Jewish person too, so that he could really be right with God. And so he says, when Paul got together with the Jewish Christian leaders and talked about what it meant to be a Christian, Titus and he and everybody realized that was not necessary. Okay? This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks, that is, in Antioch, to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. Now, that is a very pejorative way of saying some people who were Jewish and who also claimed to be Christians but weren't willing to set aside their Judaism— to understand what it meant to be Christian, came to Antioch and saw these Gentile or non-Jewish Christians that weren't becoming Jewish to be Christians acting like non-Jewish Christians. And they had this huge problem with that. And Paul refers to the way they were behaving as their freedom in Christ because they didn't have to culturally conform to the Jewish model. But what it also meant was they didn't submit themselves to Jewish practices that are commanded in the Jewish scriptures, like circumcision, the sacrificial system, and so on, right? They were taking on some of the Jewish laws because once you believe in Jesus and you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, according to Jesus, you can constitute all of the moral law for yourself by just thinking about it for a minute— and so all of the law that isn't situated in a historical context, but is for all times because it's part of the character of God, will naturally move forward into the new Christian expression. But all of the trappings of cultural Judaism that were time-sensitive and were part of the way God found the Jewish people at the time he found them, and all of those trappings would be left behind. But you can understand if you were a Jewish person, making those distinctions didn't seem very easy. And so people who thought that they could come to their Messiah without all of Judaism was a, was a problem. And so these guys were really upset by that. And this is what Paul says about that. He says, we did not give in to them for a moment so that that's called a purpose clause to tell us why he engaged in conflict so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. So he's really clear about this. Did he engage in conflict with these people? Absolutely. He says, I, we didn't give in to them for a moment. Why? Because the truth of the gospel needed to be preserved for or remain in the people who believed it. They, because the gospel was at stake. Now, if you aren't used to church or churches like this one, gospel is just the word for the good news that Jesus has died for our sins and rose from the dead for our justification to bring us to God. And for us to, we can become his disciples, be empowered by him from the inside out through the Holy Spirit, and walk with him in a way where we're part of God's kingdom presently and then ultimately. Okay? That good news was at stake in that moment. And Paul said, because the gospel is at stake, we didn't give in to them for a moment. And he goes on and talks about some details, and he talks specifically about confronting Peter, because what happened was, when these people went back to Antioch, they were like, wait, 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 you can't have this church of Jewish people, non-Jewish people, acting like there's no difference between them. And so what happened was that Peter was like, yeah, I guess you're kind of right. Jews aren't supposed to eat with Gentiles. So yes, they're Christians, and yes, we're Christians, but we're, we won't eat together. That's—but we're both Christians, but we'll just be over here. You guys be over there, right? 
And then he says, when Peter did that, everybody else kind of slowly fell in line until he says, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. He said, this is Paul, when I saw that they were, do you see this phrase again? Not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, what did he do? He engaged in confrontation, right? He said, when I saw that they weren't acting in line with the gospel, I said to Cephas or Peter in front of all of them, wait a second here. You see? So when Paul actually lets us inside of his head and tells us why he uses confrontation the way he does, what he makes really clear is, is that for, for a Christian, the truth of the gospel, what, what that means, the meaning of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and what happens when we believe in him, that that can lead us through and in every conflict. It can lead us in what it is we have to do so we know what we're to do, and it can lead us in the motivation we need to do it, which is as big as what we need to do. Now, it's true that there's a lot of common virtue that can help with conflict. There's probably a hundred self-help books and a thousand self-help blog posts and so on out there about how to do better with conflict. But what, though, what common virtue can never do is get you to the place you really need to be, which is to know what to do in a conflict, not based on what you want to happen, but to seek to move through a conflict on the basis of what God wants to happen. Conflict's not about you. And its end and what happens in reality isn't for you. You are meant to be a faithful actor in a conflict which isn't about you. And so to know what to do, the question is not, it's not, what do I want? The question is, what is in line with the truth of the gospel? And self-help and common virtue cannot answer that question. And then in addition to that, you need a motivation deep, deep enough to put, to get, put aside the fears of your very self and can overcome your deepest motivations of fear and pride so that in the middle of that conflict, you will actually do what is in line with the gospel, what truth and love in their proper proportion actually dictates as the virtuous action. I believe you can come a long way with the wisdom of common virtue, but I don't think that you can become like Jesus in conflict without it. So what I want to do is bounce through these three examples quickly and kind of apply this, what you, how you would do that, how you would go through it, and then, and then um, come to some application here at the end. Um, I, I do want to make this caveat point in relationship to High Point Church. This is why a big part of Connect, Grow, Serve is grow, and the first thing under grow is understand the gospel. Because knowing what is in line with the gospel is the first step of knowing what we, what we are to do or what a conflict means. And if we understand the, gospel sh understand the gospel shallowly, we won't ever be able to answer the questions we have to answer to figure out what to do. So the first one here is this one in Galatians. We'll go over it quickly. That is, that once we realize that we have to act in line with the gospel in, in a conflict or a potential conflict, one of the first things we'll realize is, is that we can't submit to obvious vital hypocrisy. Right? Paul looks at this situation, and he understands the gospel, and he says, sees that there's two things that are totally out of line with the gospel. Right? So he, well, the first question is, what is happening? He looks at the situation. What's really happening here? And he looks at it with gospel eyes, not just like, oh, they're being mean to these people. How can I politically make this work? He's saying what's really, what's happening here is two things. One is, there is a contrast between freedom and slavery. The gospel produces a freedom that is not constrained by the cultural practices of Judaism, but only by the ultimately universal moral truths that follow out of Judaism and aren't left behind. And therefore, if you say, in order for you to be free and right with God, in addition to believing and trusting and following Jesus, you have to become Jewish. You are saying that something besides Jesus is necessary for you to be right with God. And he said that is absolutely impossible to accept. 
Because the basis of the gospel is you are justified or you are made right. You are legitimized in God's presence and in relationship to God through Jesus' death and resurrection alone and by trusting in him, not by anything else. And the minute somebody says, you need something else, Paul says, it's a different message. So you can't do that. The second thing is, is, well, what about the food thing? What's so bad about Peter not, what, them not having shared dinners? He said, here's why it's wrong. Because you cannot do in practice what you just said wasn't true theologically. If you believe the gospel, you can't then go and act in a way that is the opposite. So if you believe that cleansing, moral, spiritual, true cleansing comes from Jesus' death and resurrection, that if he became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God, if his death cleansed us, if the whole, every picture of atonement throughout the whole Old Testament pointed forward to the atoning or cleansing and forgiving work of Jesus, how can you say we can't eat with unclean Gentiles practically? The minute you say that, you're saying they need something else to cleanse them in order for them to be clean. That's wrong. That's adding something to Jesus to to generate cleansing and therefore justification, and it's wrong. It's another message. The very heart of the gospel is at stake, and when you go and you say, I can't eat with them, that's hypocrisy. And so, Paul has to be drawn into conflict. One of our staff members, we were talking about this passage this week, said, you know, when I was growing up in church, and I would hear people talk about Paul, it sounded like he was just kind of mean and just liked to get in fights, and that if I met him, I probably wouldn't like him very much. Right? You ever felt that way? But here, here's the funny thing. When you read into 2 Corinthians, there's this place where Paul is talking about the gospel, and he said, I know what you say about me. You say, this is Paul who is kind and meek and sweet in our presence and writes these hard letters when he's away. Right? What, what does that tell you? When Paul's there to guide the ship and they aren't getting a strain creating huge gospel issues that he has to go after by writing 300 miles away, he's super nice. He's not a, a conflict machine. People liked him. They, in fact, they thought he was a little wussy. You know, not in your face enough. And then he leaves and he hears like they're totally losing the gospel. And then he writes kind of poignant letters. It's kind of like reading a nice person's email when they just have to correct you. You're like, that guy sounds mean. Well, yeah, it does. It's writing. It's, it doesn't have that nuance. Paul didn't love confrontation. He wasn't a coward of it. But it doesn't mean he loved it. But when he saw that this was out of line with the gospel, and the gospel had to guide him in conflict, he knew in this situation he had to stand up and do it. Now, and now I know sometimes people be like, okay, so basically what you're saying is Christianity is going to make me boring. Because if I believe that the gospel, if I understand the gospel well enough, it will basically tell me what to do in every situation. What you're saying is I'm going to become the most boring decision maker in the history of the world. And the answer is yes, that is absolutely true. You will not be erratic and immature anymore, and you will—people will be able to know what you're going to do before you do it, because you will always act in line with the gospel. You're like, well, I think of myself as a creative, original person. Okay, great. Most people who try to be creative and original aren't, because they're trying to be. But in addition to that, it doesn't mean that you can't then act creative and original to bring about what you're called to do by the gospel. So the gospel doesn't dictate that when Paul does this confrontation, he has to go right after Peter in a public situation. Right? But what does Paul see? Paul says, I can't let this whole thing go astray. I got to bring everybody into this. But I know Peter. I know Peter knows this is wrong. I know Peter's had this experience with God that was recorded in the earlier chapter of Acts where God let down these unclean foods and he said, no, these are—don't don't call things unclean that I said are clean. You get up and you eat a lizard right now to show me that you understand that and I want you to live according to it, which is, of course, about the Gentiles too, not just about foods. 
And Peter knows that. And so Paul gets up in front of everybody and he goes right after Peter. He doesn't go after guys from James or people that he thought were, weren't even really Christians. He went after Peter because he knows Peter's the fulcrum. And if he can win Peter, he wins everybody. And so his, his shrewdness and his creativity and his originality can still come out. And how he figures out how to bring out the best redemptive thing in the conflict. But what he has to do is dictated by the gospel. What he has to do is dictated by the gospel. And then when he says, what is the most loving and effective way to accomplish the truth coming out? He decides going after Peter in a public meeting is what he's going to do. The second one is, and so we're getting back to Acts now, is that once you realize that the gospel tells us how to move through a conflict, you realize that we can't submit to partiality or favoritism which is the majority of why our conflicts go bad. Most of the reasons why our conflicts go bad is because people expect us to go along with showing partiality and favoritism to people. Because that's the way people function. And we, have, we don't have a track record of not doing that. I'll tell you something. People don't come to me and ask me to do that anymore. For the most part. Because they know what they're going to get. It's been a long time since somebody's asked me to show favoritism. You know, real, oh, real openly. Because I'm going to be like, I'm not doing it. No, that's favoritism. You're being wicked. Let's pray. <laughs> right? Um, and, and this is what happens. Like, Barnabas is a really great guy. Okay? All the way through Acts up until this point, everything we've heard about Barnabas is he's the son of encouragement, that he's enormously generous, that he's really godly, that he stood up for Paul when nobody else would stand up for him, that when the Holy Spirit selected two people for Antioch, they picked Paul and Barnabas. I mean, all the way through this, even on their first missionary journey, when the people in this one town thought that they were gods, they thought Barnabas was Zeus and Paul was Hermes. Right? Hermes is like the talking god, and Zeus is like the god god, right? And yet, you have this split up here between them. And the subtle indication in the text is that Barnabas got this one wrong. It wasn't a mutual split. It wasn't just like they got upset, they couldn't agree, and so they agreed to disagree. Paul believed he was right, and Luke tells us subtly that he was right. But here's the, part of the issue here is you might go, okay, well, no, whoa, whoa, wait a second, Nick. You said in line with the gospel. And taking a guy along on a short-term missions trip, it, the gospel's not at stake in that. In fact, the text even says Paul didn't think it was wise. He didn't say it was, wasn't right. He said he didn't think it was wise to bring along John Mark because he'd abandoned them, right? So how is the gospel at stake in this? Right? Here's how the gospel's at stake. When they say they're going on a journey, they don't mean the same thing we mean by like, I'm going to go on a river cruise down the Rhine. Okay? This is the ancient stinking world, okay? Where, I mean, Paul says he was shipwrecked numerous times in the Aegean. Um, when you go traveling, you get strange sicknesses in other areas. Paul got stoned half to death um, I mean, they left him because they thought he was dead, right? I mean, somebody had to stand over him probably for a week after that, like, swabbing, running pus. Like, the, the people who traveled with Paul and Barnabas in, in other missionary journeys, they worked to raise money so that Paul and Barnabas could go out and preach all day. They, they did what hundreds of us do at this church. A couple guys earned enough money for four guys to live so two guys could preach. That's how their missionary team worked. You, and, and once you leave, you can't go back and get another guy. You can't like, oh, I'll drive back. I got a full tank of gas. I mean, like these people are going to other continents among totally different people with language barriers and all kinds of cultural problems. Like you have got to have somebody on the team you can trust. This isn't like, oh, maybe John Mark can come. No, John Mark needs to go incubate his behind somewhere else until he is tough and reliable enough to go on this trip is what Paul said. And Paul eventually gets over it. He's kind of, you know, years later, Paul's like, yeah, bring John Mark. That guy's awesome. But John Mark had just failed. 
He had just failed. And then Barnabas and Paul show up in Jerusalem, and they hook up with Mark, because that's where he lived. And he's like, oh, I want to go back to Antioch. And, and Barnabas is like, awesome. And so they go back, and then Mark's like, I want to go on the second missionary journey. And Paul's like, no, you aren't. No, you aren't, buddy. You're going to need to incubate. He probably didn't say urban and spitty like that. You see the point here? The go- so why is the gospel at stake? The gospel is at stake because the success of the whole second missionary journey could come down to the guys supporting the main guys. The second missionary journey goes farther than the first missionary journey. It goes through more trouble. They're in more places. They go to see more times. They go to more cities, and they accomplish much more than in the first missionary journey. And that's partly probably because Paul took Silas. And apparently Silas was a dude. Because guess what Silas got to do that John Mark didn't have to do on the second missionary journey? He got to rot in prison with Paul on a number of occasions. He got to get whipped almost to death. You think John Mark, who took off in Pamphylia, was going to be up for being whipped 39 times and thrown like some kind of piece of garbage into prison? And was going to be ready when God opened the doors to tell the jailer who was about to kill himself, don't kill yourself. We're here for Jesus, man. You can be saved. Paul was doing John Mark a favor. And because Paul understood the gravity, and he understood that the gospel had to go out, And the gospel had to go to all people. It's news, after all. Gospel means good news. What do you do with news? You you herald it, right? You go and tell—I mean, we we have this whole theology of preaching, which is a little bit funny when you look at the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't have a word for preaching like we define it. We define preaching as Nick gets up there and yells at us morally and spiritually for like— an hour. And that's different than teaching, because in teaching, like, they don't—the preachers don't really tell us what to do. They just tell us stuff is, and then we do whatever we want with it, which is usually nothing, right? And so preaching is like when the pastor gets in your business. That's not what preaching means in the Bible. The word for preaching, caruso, the verb group in the Bible, um, simply refers to heralding. That's what the word means. So it means you don't know what I'm going to tell you. I'm not—I don't have to explain it. I just have to tell you it happened. It's newsing. It's taking the news to people. That's what preaching or heralding is. And so the gospel, the good news, has to go to people who haven't heard it. They're not even to the point of explaining it. They just haven't even heard it. And so you've got to get this news out to people so they can hear it. That is the first priority. We're building a team of people that are going to go do that. Who is going to be in the band of brothers that can make this happen? John Mark doesn't make the cut because that's the priority. Get it? That may sound nice, John Mark. What are you going to say when the volunteer leader of the High Point service group you're a part of comes to you and tells you you're not doing a good job? What are you going to do? Are you going to be like, well, I'm, I give up my time and I could be watching the Packers game right now and uh, blah, blah. Translation, you should be showing me favoritism and partiality and subjecting the mission of the gospel to my feelings. And you, that's, what that, that's what you're saying when you say that. Right? What are you going to do the next time a guy gets nominated to be elected to our elder board and you really don't think he should be an elder? But if he doesn't get elected, everybody's going to know he didn't get enough votes. It's kind of embarrassing. Right? Are you going to spare his feelings? Are you going to show partiality? Is that person's feelings and your sentiment about them more important than making sure that the people on our elder board are godly to the core as best as you can tell? What about me? If I start mailing it in for a couple of years and you can see the church kind of dying in its energy and devotion to Jesus, not, not, we're not reaching anybody but, you know, Nick's got four kids, and we don't want to be mean, and you, you've got to be good to the servants of God and stuff. Like, are you going to—now, listen, if it's your fault, like, you've kind of chewed us up and spit us out, you probably should just give me an extended vacation for a while, you know? But if I'm not making the gut check anymore, and we're about the gospel, I've got to go. You can't take John Mark with you on that one, Right? Same thing on all kinds of things. The person 
cannot take precedence over the purposes of the gospel because the purposes of the gospel are there to heal the person. You're not doing them any favors. John Mark was so much better off in the end because of what Paul's rejection of him at the end of Acts 15. But, we, but this is the last we hear of Barnabas. The stream of the Spirit working through his people to bring about that which he had chosen, Barnabas leaves the picture here and never comes back into it. And that doesn't mean he goes to hell or something. Doesn't, doesn't even mean he didn't have a good ministry. I mean, I think in God's sovereignty, when these guys um, parted company, that God got two missionary teams out of it. But here's what you'll notice, because you'll be like, wait a second, you said before that you think Jesus was on Paul's side. Here's, yes, I do, and here's why. And they're very subtle markers. If you look at the last two verses of chapter 15 really carefully, it says that Barnabas took John and left, and then the word but is there. So it's, it's, it's a disjunctive word. It's not and, it's but. But... Paul took Silas, right, and left having the brothers commending them to the grace of God. That but disjoins the record of the two men such that the commending of the church to the grace of God of them is in reference to Paul and Silas and not Barnabas and John. And the second way you know that is because when it says, what it says about the churches being uplifted, it specifically says he, though it's referring to two groups of two people. So you got Barnabas and John Mark, and you've got Paul and Silas, and it says he went through certain places, strengthening the churches. That is specifically to make sure you know it is in reference to Paul and not Barnabas. And all of the locations referenced are not in Cyprus, where Barnabas has gone to, but in southern Turkey, which is Paul's homeland and where he went first, and right next to Lystra and Derby, which we're going to run into at the beginning of chapter 16. So Luke is signaling to us, without throwing Barnabas under the bus, that Paul was right. In how we use wisdom to understand how we enter into conflict, the truth of the gospel will tell us how we relate to people. And one of the main ways it'll tell us we relate to people is that we have to do what's right for the people involved on the basis of the truth. And we need to do that as lovingly as possible. And many times that's going to be, I'm sorry, I can't let you do that. That's why we have church discipline. That's why, like, if, if you openly, publicly sin and don't seem to care about it, and you're, like, a part of this church, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come directly and talk to you. And I'm going to do it as lovingly as I can, or one of our elders will. But we're going to be like, hey, you know, that's not in line with the gospel. Will you let that go, and will you come in line with the gospel? And you can be like, well, I can't believe it— but what you'll be saying is, you should have shown me partiality and favoritism and overlooked my public rejection of the gospel. And you should have let me destroy what other people think about Jesus on the basis of me doing whatever I want. And you should have valued me and my idolatry above their souls, the health of the church, its revelation of the truth of the gospel, because I am God and am much more important than that. That's normally not the position a Christian would like to hold theologically. Does that make sense? The last one, and quickly, is um, that we cannot submit to preference. And what I mean by that is our own. When we realize that we have to live in line with the gospel and conflict, you realize that our preferences are part of what make conflict bad. In fact, I would argue that nine out of ten conflicts that you and I are part of that go bad, go bad for one of two reasons, or both reasons. One— favoritism of preference of somebody else or favoritism of preference for our own preferences. And so if Jesus just got that sorted out, that would clean up like seven-eighths of our problem, right? Now, this may be controversial to about half of the people in here, but I think I can testify fairly specifically that it is the preference of grown men not to have part of their genitals cut off in order to be 
allowed to do a job. Can I get an amen? Amen. And so when you get to this first part of chapter 16 here, these first five verses, we come to it already knowing from chapter 15 that Titus didn't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. That becoming Jewish to become Christian wasn't necessary. That in order for a person to have everything that God wanted for them, everything, not only in terms of receiving it, but in terms of ministering to others, becoming a Jew and being circumcised is not necessary. And to demand that it's necessary is to reject the freedom we have in Christ and to preach another gospel, Paul says in Galatians. So why in heaven's name does Paul circumcise Timothy? Right? Why would he do that? It's clearly Timothy's preference for that not to happen. Right? But if you go back to the gospel and you say, what would it look like to live in line with the gospel? What, what were they about to do? Right? The text tells us what they were about to do was Paul wanted to include Timothy on his team, and they were going to go out and do ministry, and they were going to do ministry in a place where there was a strong um, mixture of Jewish and Gentile people in all the cities they were going to go into, and they were going to be speaking about Jesus to Jewish people every place they went. Right? So if Timothy, and you notice from the first missionary journey that from city to city, your reputation goes with you, right? And so Paul said all the Jewish people in this region knew that Timothy wasn't a real Jew, right? Now, okay, so if you've got two groups of people to talk to, the Gentiles don't care if you're Jewish or not when you talk to them about Jesus. They don't even know the issues related to that. So you come and you talk to them. It's a totally different gambit. doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. But if you talk to the Jews, it totally matters if you're a Jew or Gentile. It is very difficult for them to hear the gospel message from a Gentile person who doesn't seem to get the whole Jewish thing. And so if Timothy is going to minister to everybody that they come across, it's really clear it's going to be much more beneficial if he can walk in and out of both groups. If he's a real Jew— he can minister to the Jews, and he can minister to the Gentiles. He can minister to everybody, and people won't turn him off before they ever hear him. And so he circumcised him. Not because he has to be circumcised to follow Jesus, not because he has to be circumcised to be a true believer, not because he has to be circumcised to be free in Christ or in union with God or justified by faith, but just because if he's circumcised, he'll be able to minister to everyone. People will give him a hearing who otherwise would shut him off and shut him down. So Timothy had to put aside his preferences, some fairly significant ones, so that he could be used by the gospel. And the things that both keep us from sharing the gospel effectively, and also the things that aggravate our conflicts, are almost always our preferences. It's really not that common where someone is absolutely trying to force you to violate a vital moral principle. That's not really that common. Oftentimes when we get upset and we're the issue, it's because they're offending a preference, something that we want, someone we feel like we can legitimately ask for for ourselves, something that offends us that they, they've sort of implicitly asked us to put aside. Right? You get this with married couples, right? Where have you, so most married couples, I don't know if you know this, but most, because most couples suffer silently with this, but almost most couples, especially nowadays, have huge fights about who's going to do what at home, right? So like a hundred years ago, there was like an official inerrant list of what women did and what men did, and like neither the twain shall meet, and I'm not castrating the cows, and you know, you're going to do that. Like, it's just, the work was pretty clearly split up. When we came into this sort of, like, egalitarian present, it was kind of like, well, men and women are the same, and we can both do everything, and I can take out the trash, and he can cook dinner, and blah, 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 right? Which is fine. It's totally cool, because, yes, everybody can do all that stuff, especially since we do virtually nothing physical anymore. And so, and so here's what happens, and this is what I tell couples in premarriage counseling. I'll say, listen, um, let's start with your view of gender roles and work from there. But listen, if, you, if, you, if you're an egalitarian, you believe there's no gender roles in the home, 
I can't convince you otherwise, but I just want you to know you better agree then on what you're going to do. Otherwise, every moment is going to be an argument because your pre-understandings aren't going to solve them for you, so you're going to fight about everything, right? And Alyssa had this for years, because the calculus of who's pulling their weight is impossible, right? Everybody figure—it's like, it's like figuring with your in-laws what counts as time with them as opposed to what counts as time with your other in-laws, right? If you talk to your other in-laws on the phone, it's like you stayed with them for a week, but it doesn't count, like your parents, it doesn't count unless you had like built an addition onto the house with them. You know what I mean? And when couples enter into this like shared work calculus, it's always like, well, yeah, you went to work, but work is fun. I was here with these idiotic babies, right? So you, because you talked with adults all day, you get a minus 50%. And you're like, what? Like the guys, you know, the guy, whoever's going to work is like, what are you talking about? I was berated, and I hate my job, and I stared at a computer screen, and you got to form our offspring that threw up on me nine times. Okay, but like this is how it goes. What this ultimately comes down to is just kind of like, you shouldn't be asking me to do one percent more than my share. Why? Because I'm not here to serve you. I'm, we have a treaty where you and I each do our share, and I get stuff out of this relationship, and you get stuff out of this relationship, and we profit from it together, and it goes well, and that's where that fight really comes from. I don't trust you to serve me if I serve you. Right? What's that? That whole conflict— and be like, well, Nick, can we come in and talk to you? Because I really don't think we've been communicating very well. Because we've been screaming the F word at each other. And maybe you could help us with some techniques, right? And I'm going to be like, okay, you can come talk to me. But here's what I'm going to tell you. You need to accept Jesus. That's what I'm going to tell you, right? And that will be good pastoral counseling, right? Because that's what really needs to happen. And so, so much of what how we enter into conflict and deal with conflict is us demanding our preferences. And listen, Timothy didn't get to keep the end of his gear to go into ministry. Because he understood by far the most important thing was that the message of Jesus would go to people in such a way that they wouldn't stop listening before they even heard it. Right? And now think about that in terms of how we live. And how we talk, right? And how are we like to add in our idiosyncrasies and our values and stuff like that to the gospel when we talk to people, right? And so, like, you, you can see this with, with race, you can see this with age, and you can see this with politics. Those are three of the most obvious areas. Where, like, you know, the old person is trying to, like, get the young person straightened out. And they're, you know, and like some of their old curmudgeon views are added into the gospel, kind of snuck in there. And they're like, well, you'd shave if you were really a Christian too, you know. And you're kind of like, are you tucking that shirt if you respected Jesus, you know. And, it, and, and the young people are like, you know, you'd, you'd let us, you know, explode the ceiling off of this room with volume and worship if you really cared about Jesus. And back and forth it goes, and people suck their little preferences in, and the gospel doesn't shine, and then we go out and we do that with everybody in the city. And we stick in our stuff, and we say things like, High Point Church, a new way to do church. Implicit, because all the other churches suck, because it's not the gospel that matters, it's how slick our pastors, or how cool our music is, or how nice our upholstery is. That's what really matters. It's all in these implicit, like, preference worship, and the gospel is about being like, nope, nope, you don't get to do that. And it's only when that happens that we actually begin to be the kind of people in conflict that are enormously winsome. And so, let me, so let me say it this way. Um, when I get out of church world and get to be out with like predominantly non-Christians, there's only a couple of things that will normally come up where they'll be like, you know, you are actually different than most of the people I know. What, and they don't mean like weird and worse. They mean like better, right? And the one that comes up the most is actually conflict. 
Um, one example of this is a little while back, Lexi and I went on a, um, a vacation with her family. Her, there's no Christians on her side of the family. And um, about two days into it, things were already kind of turned around. All this like backbiting, oh, this, it was just getting worse. And it was, it was turning into a Florida nightmare, right? And, you know, I was talking to Lexi, and Lexi's like, oh. And my, and my, my kids were starting to feel it, you know? And we just, we kind of got together, and she and I talked, and we're like, look, we need to be ourselves, right? We are Christians. We love Jesus. We need to be that and not get drawn in, but we still need to participate with everybody, and we need to, we need to love everybody here. And so we started entering into these conversations, and, and, and the different moments where you could say something where somebody had to kind of get thrown under the bus, or somebody had to, like, take it for the team— Alexi would volunteer herself, or me, or I would volunteer me, or, or our family would do it, so that we would like, why? why? Why would we do it that way? Why is that the way? Because Jesus does that. He absorbs, like he takes to himself the wrath, right? So that there can be peace and justification for all others. Like, so we're like, how can we do that? How can we, how can we serve? How can we, how can we endanger our reputation so that people think well of each other? How do we, how do we do that? And by about day four, that thing had kind of righted itself to the point where her parents could say to her, man, I don't thank you. Like, you so helped turn this thing around. That was like, and we actually had a few good days and people were like, hey, that was okay. We kind of had fun. And, and our kids got to see that too. This happened, this happened so many times where if you, and I'm not saying, Alexa and I don't have some good ones where it's our preferences and like we're, we want preferential. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But I'm saying more and more in my life over the last 15 or 20 years, I've been able to realize in the moment, this is about living in line with the gospel. And what it would look like for me to do that. And to not show favoritism, not engage in hypocrisy, and not hold on to my personal preferences. And try to be truthful and loving in the most creative and helpful way I can figure out. And when that happens, when you are not the issue, when you enter into conflict self-forgetfully, in a real Jesus-motivated humility, you will be amazed at how things come up right. And you will be amazed at how slander bounces off of you. And you will also be amazed at how you don't care if it does. When you actually get to the place where you really, what you care about is how God thinks of you. And so as much as I want to give you principles of dealing with conflict, I know you're going to forget them if I give you 12 principles of dealing with conflict. And I also know that when the moment comes where you have to do it, you won't be able to. But what I'm, what I'm telling you is, is that if you're a Christian and if you will really believe in Jesus and believe in the message of the gospel and what he's done and why he's done it, and you'll drink that in deeply and learn to believe it in places where you don't want to and unsee the little idols that hold on to preferences that don't want to give way. And if you go through that and grow in godliness and humility, you will find conflict coming up right over and over again, or better and better than it did. And so as much as there are incredible principles about dealing with conflict, about wisdom in the book of Proverbs and so on, ultimately what this comes down to in many ways is, will you believe in Jesus? The big program I want to invite you to is Conflict resolution by faith. Or if I was Luther, by faith alone. Conflict resolution by faith alone. Will you actually look at the situational conflict the way you believe Jesus would look at it? With faith. And then will you ask with faith, well, how am I not at stake in this, but how is the gospel at stake in this? By faith. And then say, where is my motivation for doing what's right going to come from right now? And then lastly, 
what is the virtuous action? What is the thing that the, the, with the gospel at stake, being self-forgetful of myself, being motivated by thankfulness and joy and not pride and fear out of what Christ has done for me and what he wants to do for all people through me, what is the virtuous action and do I have the courage to do it? Because it might be very complicated, and sometimes you have to use a lot of creativity at figuring out how to live it out faithfully. Sometimes it's really simple. Like this week, who in this room is a Christian? If you say you're a Christian, you're going to meet God in a second. I don't know if you heard that. Not a lot of the press has reported that that's how the gunman in Oregon decided who he was going to kill. Right? And a number of people dealt with that conflict, six or seven of them, by saying, I'm a Christian, and they were shot in the head. Right? The question of motivation is as important as what we're to do. And the two have to flow together out of faith in Jesus. And only when we are put so powerfully aside by something greater than ourselves will conflict turn out right. I don't care how many principles you memorize. This ultimately comes back to Jesus. So as the band comes up and as we play the final song, I really want to encourage you to move towards being better in conflict by believing in Jesus. And for some of you, that may mean for the first time, believing in Jesus. For some of you, it may mean re-believing in Jesus generally again and saying, oh, yep, I kind of got away from that. Oh, Jesus, yeah, I need to believe in you entirely not just to save me from my sins, but you are king, you're in charge, you are God. And then for some of us, there is a particular thing in your preferences. There is a particular idol you do not want to turn loose of. And your conflicts will continue to get worse, and they will continue to go bad until you loose that thing. And so while we sing— Explicitly say to Jesus, this is it. This is the thing. I was wrong, and, and you can have it. I let it go. And then what I, w- I really want to encourage you to do is, if God is doing something in you, to come down after the service and pray with the people who are down here so that by actually going through a motion and asking God again and praying with somebody else and saying it out loud, you actually have a chance to actually remember what God wants to do in you so you'll, you can, might even remember at the end of the Packers game. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to be a people who thrive in conflict. We want to be the kind of people not only who endure conflict, but where conflict is one of the places where we shine the most brightly, where common virtue fails, and where preferences and pride and fear and all these things rush in and contort the character of so many of our neighbors. We want to be a people that because of Jesus, it's our best moment. It's the moment where we see that we have to walk in line with the truth of the gospel and put aside our preferences and put aside our favoritisms and shun the hypocrisy of the moment and to be as loving and truthful in the most original way possible, but entirely consistent with the life, death, resurrection, and redeeming work of Jesus. We pray that you would make us, Holy Spirit, come right now and convict and encourage and push and teach and illuminate our hearts and minds so that we could respond to you and do something with what you're telling us. We pray in Jesus' name.